talk about some of the things about Islam. The first question, of course, why did you come tonight besides to eat wings? In other words, why are you interested in Islam? Well, it's in the news all the time, and that's mostly from the political end, the warfare end, the terrorism end. We're not going to talk about that part. It's a battle that goes on on two fronts. The one front is spiritual, Christianity and Islam, as far as ways of salvation. Christianity and Islam are the two biggest religions in the world. Hinduism is very big, but why is it that, Indi that Islam and Christianity are the ones that collide? Because they're the two missionary religions that believe they're for all the people of the world. Hindus don't care too much whether Americans or Canadians become Hindus. They don't care too much if Chinese people become Hindus. What they care about is their religion. People want to be there, fine. If they don't want to be there, it's also fine. Where these are two missionary religions. I lived in the Middle East, my family and I, when our son was young, we lived in Jerusalem. I've always been involved in Middle Eastern things, and I got directly involved. We lived in Arab neighborhoods, we did business with Arabs, Palestinians, and also in both peace neighborhoods and more hostile uh, Islamic neighborhoods. <clears throat> the reason, the way I got more directly involved, how many people are here from UWM? Okay. I was just sitting in my office minding my own business one day, and I get this call, and he says, Hi, I'm Gias Shabsig, and I'm studying international banking at UWM, and I'm head of the Islamic Student Association of UWM in Milwaukee. <clears throat> and he said, We'd like you to come, and we're bringing in a debater from Toronto, Dr. Jamal Badawi, and we'd like you to come to UWM, and probably hundreds of Muslims will come to hear this debate. <clears throat> And you'll be debating with Dr. Badawi, who is Jesus Christ? I thought, how perfect could it be? That's what we want to talk about, not who is Muhammad or anything like that. We want to talk about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and I, he's, I said, well, how did you happen to invite me? Because I didn't know him. And he said, well, we have, anybody here from Marquette? We have priests from Marquette. And they come and they say, Christianity is a nice religion. Islam is a re nice religion. We like them both. They said, we want a confrontation. Not wishy-washy. We want a confrontation. And we've been told that if you come, there's going to be one. <laughs> and so he said, that's why we're inviting you. They said, we want this to be polite. So there's two aspects. One is, in Islam is confrontational. If you, in, if you invited a lot of Muslims to come to this tonight, they probably wouldn't come because this is a Christian event. If I was here debating against a Muslim guy, then the Muslims would come to cheer for their team. So in those situations, you have opportunities. Where else can you have 400 Muslims that you can present the gospel to them? And I'll talk about the best way to do that when we get to page two. So we're going to talk mostly about the friendship side, not so much the confrontational side. As a result of this, I was invited to go regularly to the mosque in Milwaukee. The main mosque is on 13th and Layton near the airport. Eventually, I got people ask, well, why are you going to the mosque? And I said, well, that's where the Muslims are. <laughs> where else can you get Muslims that will let you talk to them for an hour about Christ? It has to be at their event, usually. So the confrontational part. And they are, they are confrontational. They want to have a contrast between Christianity and Islam. The ones that say, well, it's all alike in that, they aren't regular Muslims. Real Islam wants a thing. I met them sometime after the debate. 
And the guy didn't immediately recognize me and shook hands, all very cordial. He said, oh, yes, our dangerous enemy. So nice to see you, an enemy. So nice to see you, our dangerous enemy. And they shake hands with you. And so it is, it is confrontational that they believe they are the way to paradise, and we believe that Jesus is the way to paradise. So it's very confrontational. I was invited to the mosque, and I was taken to feasts and stuff at the mosque. They understand that you're not one of us, and we don't think you're going to worship with us or anything. They would sometimes, because the people taking me were prestigious, they were like heart surgeons and stuff, they would say, well, we'd like our visitor to speak to us, and you could tell that the leader of the mosque uh, didn't want that. And only one time did anything ever happen that was a little bit on the shaky side. In some parts of the world it was. I came in, and this guy came up, and he grabbed me, and he started shaking me and, and yelling at me and everything. You're here to destroy us. You know, you're an evil guy, and you're here to destroy us. And he's yelling at me and everything. And, and uh, the other ones grabbed him. They pulled him off, and they're all yelling in all these other languages. You know, and they're yelling in all these languages. And then the person that was my host said, we're sorry this happened to you as our guest. But surely you understand what a dangerous, dangerous man you are. And nobody had ever said that to me before. And I thought, that's 100% correct. If you come to a heathen culture and you talk about Jesus and God's love, you're very dangerous. That's the only thing that can shake and open the doors, isn't it? If you talk about Jesus. If you come and say bad things about Muhammad, even if they're true, all that's going to do is make everybody mad, isn't it? It's just going to make everybody mad. But when you start talking about Jesus, and when Muslims come and say to you, you mean you think God is a father that loves me? I've never heard that before. Or you think God has paid for all my sins? And so I was at the mosque, and I had been going for a while, and there was a group around me, and they were talking, and there was a, a young African-American man whose name was Wally, who had become a Muslim, and he said, just a minute, he always called me brother, and he said, just a minute, if I understand what the brother is saying, that the important things here are what we're going to do about Jesus. And I said, that's exactly right, Wally. And then they all started chanting, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. I don't think they were trying to intimidate me, but they realized we were getting in very dangerous territory because Wally was now interested in Jesus. <coughs> And he thought that Jesus was somebody that loves him. That confrontation they do not want. But that's the only confrontation where we can win anything that's meaningful, isn't it? If you degrade Islam, you say bad things. You're just going to make everybody mad. There's times to talk about things that are right and wrong. But so that what you always have to remember is, no matter what the subject is, we've just had a political campaign. When somebody asks a politician a question, what does a politician do? He doesn't answer that question. He answers whatever question he wants to talk about. <clears throat> he ignores the question. Well, that's the way it is when you deal with Muslims. Whatever they want to talk about, whether it's charity, no matter what it is, you always have to get the conversation to Jesus. That's the way that you always have to do it. So there's confrontational. And basically, <clears throat> after that, I knew my future here is very limited. <clears throat> and the leader of the mosque told me, when we want to see you here again, you'll get an invitation. I faithfully have checked my mailbox, but I haven't found many. 
But the point I'm really hammering is talking about Christ and God's love. That's the only thing that really gets through. There's time to talk about other things. If they're friends especially, if you have confidence, you can talk about politics and all that, but you want to stay away from those. So I'm just going to give you a quick little runabout on Islam here. And the, the other thing I'll stress is who are the Muslims? Anytime you're dealing with a Muslim, it's the second paragraph, you cannot assume what a Muslim believes. There may be a Muslim who knows nothing about Islam. He's just cultural. He's from a country. There may be some who are very devoted spiritual Muslims who do not endorse violence. There are some, as we well know in today's world, who believe Islam can be advanced by violence. What's the only way you can find out what kind of Muslim he or she is? To talk to them and to listen to them. And I'm going to give you a few hints on doing that. So there are some Muslims who are, just like in Italy, everybody's a nominal Catholic, aren't they? But most of them aren't Catholics. They're unchurched. Many Muslims are agnostics or atheists. or They really don't know anything about Islam. A lot of Lutherans don't know very much about Lutheranism. So you have to ask, what kind are they? They may, they may be fervent in advancing Islam, or they may, their life may be revolving around economics and, and you know, a better life for their family than that. The so-called black Muslims, the nation of Islam, they are not Muslims. They're a racist cult, like Louis Farrakhan and so on. They are not Muslims, and Muslims don't recognize them as such. Muhammad Ali started out as nation of Islam. That's not orthodox Islam. And Muslims would say, nation of Islam is not Islam. So when you hear about a lot of Muslims in prison or whatever, or a ministry to inner city, they may be traditional Muslims, I'll call them Mecca Muslims, or they may be Nation of Islam. Regular Islam is trying to work with Islam. There's another group that's a break away from Islam. It's called a Mahadiya, and they believe all religions are the same, and it should be all peace. But they, too, are not recognized by Muslims. And often when you watch the news, They'll have a speaker on there, and he'll be saying, Islam is for peace. Look at the little print at the bottom, and it will usually say, nine times out of ten, it will say, Amahadiyya. They are not Orthodox Muslims. So that would be like Mormons representing Christianity, or Jehovah's Witnesses representing Christianity, or whatever. So Islam also does not mean peace. Even some of our presidents said Islam means peace. Islam means submission, salam. Islam is the religion of submission, and a Muslim, or they say Muslim, and if it's a woman, they usually use Muslima, feminine, Muslima. They believe that they have submitted to God's will. And we would say you can't really submit to God's will if you rejected Jesus, the one that he has sent. So you, have to, you can't say we follow God. Some Muslims will say, well, Jews and Christians and Muslims all pray to the one God. Before I got kicked out at the mosque, I would go to programs and stuff. And I, they said, you know, Christians and Jews and Muslims are all praying to the same God. Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. And I raised my hand and I said, well, you know, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I pray to him, so are we praying to the same God? And he said, well, no, of course not. <clears throat> and I said, then well, why do you say that Jews and Christians and Muslims all pray to the same God? He said, because Allah is the only God that's out there. There is only one God. So anybody that's praying to God, they're praying to Allah. We Muslims are doing it in the correct way. 
you Christians are not doing it in the correct way. And the other thing I have on your sheet there is the main difference between Christianity and Islam. And I can summarize that in about three points, though we could talk about it for hours. The main difference, of course, is they believe there is only one God, Allah, and there are no persons. The Holy Spirit is the angel Gabriel. And Jesus is the greatest prophet after Muhammad, second greatest prophet. Dr. Badawi was going to say we Muslims honor Jesus more than anybody except Christians. We say he's the second greatest prophet. I got to go first, and I said Jesus was God. So he had to tear up his script and say he's a great prophet, but he's not God. In Islam, the worst sin is called shirk in Arabic. That means associating with somebody but God, and that is believing in Jesus as a Savior. So if you don't, there, how many religions are there in the world? You could say one. You could say two. You could say many. <laughs> one definition of religion is a way that you can get in fellowship with God and get to heaven. How many religions are there? One. The other is ways people try to get to heaven. How many religions are there? Two. And one is the gospel, and the other is the law. Now, the religion of the law, there's lots of different brand names, aren't there? Buddhism, Hinduism, Shinto. There's lots of different brand names, but they all have to, do, to say what you do is what will make the difference. If at the end of your life, it's like Chase Bank, you have credit in your account, you get into paradise. If you've got a deficit, you've got more bad things than good things. Anybody who wants to believe that he can be saved by the law, he has to rewrite God's law. He's got to cut off all the stuff at the top, all the unclean thoughts and stuff. That, that's not a big deal. That's not sin. And then you have to end out at the bottom. In the Christian version, you say, well, don't play cards, don't go to movies, don't drink alcohol. You make a lot of external laws that you can keep so you can keep score and say you're keeping all these things and you're getting a nice tally. You're running up a good tally of, of works. Islam, too is not very much a religion of faith and doctrine. There's not a lot of doctrine. It's more a religion of observation. They have the five pillars of Islam, which is a special daily prayer. There's fasting in the month of Ramadan. All of these are very fascinating topics and so on. And so, in a way, it's very simple. It's nice if you know something about Islam. It's nice if you talk to people and find out about it. But if you can talk about the love of God the Father, and Jesus paying for our sins, you know what you need to know, don't you? Anything else you can then ask about. Especially sometimes to Muslim women, the idea of a loving father and a father that loves you and died for you, that strikes them as very strange. But it, when, they, when they start saying, you mean you think God loves me and he has promised to save me and he has paid for my sins, it's like Paul said the scales were falling from his eyes. And so that's what we have to get through to them, what the love of Christ is. If you're talking about individual Muslims, why can't I very easily at the mosque do friendship evangelism? You probably want to do friendship evangelism with your Muslim neighbors or students, you know. There's two kinds of cops in the world. Good cop and bad cop. In their perception, which one am I? Bad cop, <laughs> bad cop. 
so I could maybe start someplace fresh and be good cop, but if you're on the confrontational side, you're bad cop. Well, we need bad cops and we need good cops. And probably most of the time, unless you're called to be a missionary in a Muslim country or something, you're gonna be in the good cop friendship side. And what I wanna do a little bit about is clear up some misconceptions. I'm, I've given you kind of the, this is almost the exact script that we prepared for that debate, which was at UWM. If I was gonna to talk to Muslims and what would I want them to know about Christianity, what would I do? Well, I wouldn't start telling them right away about the Trinity and getting all embroiled and stuff. I would basically follow the order which I've given here and you can read this whole thing yourself. With any group, you always start from the common ground, don't you? You, tr you, you don't try to start from all the areas you disagree on first. You start to start from the common ground and then logically work from there. And for us and Orthodox Muslims, one of the most common grounds is we believe in inspired scriptures. They believe in inspired scriptures, but we believe it's the Bible and they believe it's the Quran. But you can say, you know, in people search for spiritual things, we think people can't just find spiritual things just by looking in themselves or something, that God has given some inspired scriptures. So you talk about, you know, I would like to read some of the Quran and try to understand where you're coming from. Will you also read the Gospel of John that talks about Jesus? Or, you know, you have a good translation they can read. Will you read Romans or something? And then, then let's talk about uh, what scriptures. Actually, in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned more often in the Quran than Muhammad. And so you can say, well, I noticed in reading the Quran, you know, there's an awful lot about Jesus. They believe that Jesus even has a part on Judgment Day. They believe he's the second greatest prophet. They don't believe he died for sin. They said he didn't die. Prophets don't die. It just looked like he died. It was fake, and there's different stories about that. We may not have time uh, to go into that. So you try to say, well, let's start from scriptures. How do we know who Jesus is? And you have to kind of agree with them. What Muslims will do to tear down the Bible, who does all their homework for them? The liberal Christians that don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. They'll crowd out all these quotations. You know, the Jesus Seminar, uh, they don't believe in the Bible. The Da Vinci Code, they don't believe in the Bible. And so they say, Christians don't believe in the Bible. And so one of the first things you have to do is say, well, if you want to use people who don't believe in Christianity as examples of Christianity, then I'll use Rushdie and the Satanic Letters and all that stuff for Islam. But can we agree on this? I will define Islam by what the Quran and the official traditions say, and we will define Christianity by what the Bible says, not by somewhat what someone else says. And so you can get them talking about how do we know who Jesus is, and then you would present what scripture is. Christians through all centuries believe the Bible, and it kind of, you can read this for yourself, so I won't go into detail here. So you'd say, I'll read your scriptures, you read my scriptures, and let's talk about some of the things in them. When I gave this, there were specific rules for the debate. My wife was in the audience and she was really nervous because I only had 20 minutes. And so I, when I got to 15, or I had 15 minutes, when I got to 15 minutes, I still hadn't talked about the part of who Jesus was. And she was really afraid I'd never get to it. And I said, well, I'm taking my chances here. I'm the visitor. They're not gonna cut me off <coughs> the first time. 
and throw me off the thing or something. They'd, they would look kind of bad if they did. And so <clears throat> when, they got, when I got to the end, it took me about 20 minutes. This, I presented this in about 20 minutes, uh, kind of everything you need to know in miniature. And they said, well, Dr. Brood went a bit long. We'll let Dr. Badawi have the same amount of time. <clears throat> but from now on, I'm going to be really strict. You know, I'm going to really enforce things. And I would say my experience has always been, some people say it's not fair. My experience has always been if they make a deal and they agree on terms that they honor them. I've never had a case where they said, you know, they promised one thing and then they did something else. That never happened. <laughs> so you start out by saying, how do we know who Jesus is? Let's agree that God has given inspired word. And you believe it's in the Quran. I believe it's in the Bible. Let's read each other's books and let's talk about what we find there. I'll talk to you about what I find in the Quran. You can talk to me about what you find in the Gospel of John. Then the next part is very important. Nobody can understand anything about Jesus unless they recognize that they are sinful. Muslims in general do not believe that they are. They don't think they're perfect, but they don't believe these things are really sins that would keep you out of eternal life. So the next thing I would do, the second thing I would do, is to talk about why do we need to know who Jesus is. And you have to, in some way, show them that they are sinful. When you were a child, did you and your brothers and sisters fight? Did you always obey your parents? Do you hold grudges against people? So you have to show them for a holy God. You, you're thrilled if you get 97 or 98 on a test, aren't you? But on Judgment Day, what's the passing grade? 100% is the only passing grade. And that can only happen when all of your sins are removed through Christ. And so you talk about why do we need to know who Jesus is? So you have to talk with them long enough to talk about the fact that they would acknowledge, yes, if God really expects, they would say, well, it wouldn't be fair for God to expect us perfect. Nobody is perfect. Yeah, that's the point. <clears throat> that's the point, isn't it? But if he's if it's a holy God, God doesn't have like 95%. It's like when you're out, if you get, a, you get stopped and you get a speeding ticket. And the cop says, I have, sorry, I have to give you a speeding ticket. And you say, but I stopped at the stop sign. I was in the right lane. My tail lights and brake lights all work. I've kept 98%. That doesn't mean he can't give you a ticket, does it? How many laws do you have to break to be a criminal? One. How many wrongs do you have to do to be sinful? One. And so you have to start leading them to question uh, whether they can really be good enough for a holy God. You mean you think God is a God who just doesn't really care that much about the little sins and stuff. Well, he might be a nice God, but unfortunately that God is the God that you've embedded in your own mind, isn't it? It's not the God who's really out there. And so you have to work with that and say, why do we need to know who Jesus is? So try to show them what sin is. Now is the time, under point number three, they introduce what Jesus has done. Most Muslims have a very fundamental misunderstanding about Christianity. They think we believe that Jesus was a man who was good enough to become God. And they think that he, he was a man and God was his father. And the Trinity is God the Father, Jesus' mother Mary, and Jesus. That's what they think the Trinity is. 
if they haven't heard much about Christianity. And that isn't all their fault. Why would they think that? Because Islam confronts Christianity in countries which are either Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. So they see all these icons of Mary. They see the processions of the saint. They see more, maybe more statues of Mary than they see statues of Jesus. And so they think, I think the Trinity is God. Christians think, Christians think that the Trinity is God. And Christians think that Mary is the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus is their child. And what you want to tell them, and it's kind of in this paragraph, Christianity does not believe that a man became God. That's impossible. But what Christianity believes is that God in his love became a man because our sins could be paid for. So you see the connection here between points two and point three. If to get into heaven and be holy, you have to have no sins at all in your record, you'd say, that's impossible. I could never do that. And Muslims say, well, if you've got to be perfect to get into heaven, that's impossible. Yeah, it is for us. But it isn't impossible for God to pay the debt. No one could pay the debt of sin. You can't do enough good things to cancel out all the bad things. And so the only way sin could be paid for is for God to become a man. And so we believe that in Christianity, God took on a human nature and became a man so he could make a perfect payment that would be enough to pay for all the sins of all the people. And so that this would be, and he had to be a true man so that he could suffer death. If there was any other way that sin could be paid for, other than the one God used that Jesus became a man, I can't think of one. <clears throat> I mean, we can't retell God what you can do and what you can't. But a holy God can't just say, oh, that's okay, I'll ignore sin, because then he wouldn't be holy, would he? The only place that God can keep his law that says every sin has to be punished and every sin is to be forgiven, that's only possible on the cross of Christ. There's no other place where that is possible, where both the law and the gospel are fulfilled. So then you show them what has Jesus done, that he's paid for all of the sins of all of the people. And this is very difficult for them to understand, but it, they, they will very often say, I've never heard anything like that before. I didn't think that's what Christianity was. In general, even in countries like Indonesia, which has had a kind of mild Islam, they are taught Christians hate you and want to kill you. That's why things like medical missions and that, or when we send eyeglasses, sometimes Muslims would say, well, I've always been told that Christians hate me and want to kill me, but it doesn't look that way. That doesn't look like the ones I know, and it doesn't seem that way. So what has Jesus done? And you can read this for yourself. And then after that, then you really talk about what is the Trinity and so on. How could Jesus' death be a payment for all of the sins of all of the people? Because he was God and man. So you sort of work through these. There's a little summary statement here at the end. I'll read it. It's in the middle of page 2. Three summary statements. The God of the Bible is so holy that he cannot accept anything less than a full payment for sin. If he's a holy God, he can't just say, oh, I'll give you a free pass on your sin. The God of the Bible is so merciful that he provided himself the payment which we could not pay. And he did this by his son becoming man to be our savior. He doesn't allow himself to be squeezed in our little way of thinking. This is a sheet that usually 
I, I would give to all Muslims after something like a debate like this. There's a problem, of course, an issue. If somebody starts getting interested in Christianity, they're going to circle the wagons, aren't they? Because <clears throat> they're thinking this guy's getting too interested in talking about Jesus. This lady's getting too interested in talking about Jesus. So they're going to circle the wagons. In this way, the Internet is kind of a blessing because it gives a lot of opportunities for Muslims who become interested in Christianity to be able to explore this anonymously. Uh, if you have a Muslim that's really interested, don't send him a letter that says Lutheran <coughs> campus ministry in the return address or something. Or if you send them tracts, send them in the notorious brown envelope <coughs> that people do not know that they are getting too interested. If they want to become more open and find more, they have to make that decision. That's true in any country where there's oppression against religion. Jesus didn't out Nicodemus. Nicodemus was afraid that Nicodemus would only show up at night. The time came when Nicodemus was ready to step up and be counted. I've also worked in Russia in the Soviet place and that, and there were people that were afraid to be baptized or be Christian because this could become known and it could be a danger to them. So the, what, what, no matter what country it is in the world, whatever the situation is, when there is some pressure or danger on them, like if I'm in Russia, I can get on the airplane and go home. <clears throat> if I'm in Saudi Arabia and I talk too much about Jesus, what are they going to do? They're probably, I'm an American, they're just going to throw me out. <clears throat> they're going to make sure my picture is in the passport control and I don't get in again. They're, so they'll just throw me out. I can get on the airplane. I can go home. They can yell at me in Arabic. They can yell at me in Finnish. They can yell at me in Russian. I don't understand it, so it doesn't matter. <clears throat> they can yell at me all I want. But the people, they can be in danger, can't they? And you kind of, in the end, you can't tell a person, well, you shouldn't confess your faith because you might suffer. I can't tell them that, can I? But they are the ones that have to decide, do I need to step up in my society and be counted? That's a decision that they have to make. So this sheet kind of gives you what I would say are some of the main things to do. As far as dealing with individuals, what do we have till eight? A couple more minutes? Okay. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some things to watch in friendship evangelism. Before you can apply this, this doesn't apply to everybody, you have to know what kind of Muslim are they. Some Muslims who come and talk to you about Islam, why are they coming to you? Because they're already disenchanted. Like today, some Roman Catholics might come and talk to you because they're very, very alarmed or discouraged about the sexual issues going on. And so the only reason they're coming to you is because they're disturbed by that, but it's you finally get to talking about Christ. Same way a Muslim might be real angry about the way women are treated in Saudi Arabia or something like that. Because they come to you and they're already upset. And you could, nobody can ever come to church for the right reason. But we hope they stay for the right reason. That's the same way a Muslim might come and talk to you for the right reason. In some countries, you can't ever raise the topic. In Indonesia, you can't talk about Jesus unless they invite you to. So it varies with the thing. The families around here kind of find out what kind of family are they. Are they devout Muslims, but peaceful? Are they uh, strong Muslims? Are they kind of cultural Muslims that don't know too much about it? There's also folk Muslims, like there's folk Christians. They mix their old heathen beliefs and their Islamic beliefs together. There's all kinds of things like that. So the main thing with Muslims is if you're going to do friendship evangelism, what's the first requirement? 
that you be a friend. <clears throat> if you're just using them for your purposes and you don't really care about them, they're going to figure that out, aren't they? If you aren't really sincerely interested in them and them in their life, if they're just a target or they're just a prop, that, that's not friendship evangelism. So you really have to care about them. The main thing is if, they, if anybody's going to say anything negative about Islam, who should say it? The Muslim. If you're dealing with Catholic friends, and who, if somebody's going to say something negative about Catholicism, who should say it? Generally, they should. I mean, you might know. In other words, if you talk about Jesus and they start thinking Jesus is a God who loves me, all this other stuff is just going to fall down, isn't it? You're not going to have to talk a whole lot about Muhammad and Muhammad's teenage wives. All this stuff is all true, but it doesn't do any good. It, and it's true, and it's only from Islamic sources. But it's just going to make them mad. So once they believe Jesus is a God who loves them and they understand they're a sinner, all this other stuff is just going to fall apart, isn't it? Because that one thing will take everything else. You do have to watch for customs. Could they eat your chicken wings? Why not? They don't eat pork, but why can't they eat your chicken wings if they're real devout? They don't know if it's been... Islam is really like Judaism. It's a heretical form of Judaism. They don't know... To... The Jewish term is kosher. Halal is the Muslim term. They, it's not just if you have ham or something. They may, they may not know whether your meat is... They may have to stick with the veggies, <clears throat> depending on how, how devout they were. For men, what's the big landmine that could really blow up in your face? Too close of a contact with women. If they're real devout Muslims, you could never be alone with a Muslim woman. You could probably never, you should never sit next to her on a couch unless you know what kind of Muslim this is. If I'm where there's a lot of Muslim women, I'm not going to offer to shake their hand. But if she offers her hand, then I'm not going to go. <laughs> and so you have to kind of be sensitive. And that can be in any place. They may be very devout. My wife got in trouble once. I'll touch a guy. I said, well, I don't get in trouble here. My wife in Jerusalem, she once touched me on the shoulder. And they, <clears throat> the Muslim guards, naughty, naughty, bad lady. <clears throat> you know, you can't touch that man in public, <clears throat> even if it's your husband. That may be true in some countries. It may not be in others. How modest do you have to be in your dress? How covered up do you have to be? That varies from one Muslim culture to another. You won't go wrong by being a little bit too modest. <clears throat> you may go wrong, but just be careful. And sometimes that's not just really far away cultures. Uh, I was a car contact man for Scandinavia for 12 years, and Mrs. Becker was the wife of the previous one. You, you're with Swedes, and you kind of think, well, we're all the same. When you have Muslim friends, never ask them to go through the line first or anything, or any friends from a strange thing. Why, not, why don't you ask them to go through the line first? Because they don't know what to do. It's like you're in a strange church, and it's communion. You don't want to sit in the first pew because you aren't quite sure what to do. <laughs> so have somebody that goes with them or have somebody show them. I'll take an example from Sweden. They have these big, fabulous cakes in Sweden. And Mrs. Becker was invited, go, please go through the line first. <clears throat> she cut a regular American-sized piece of cake. American-sized pieces of cake are twice as, like everything else American, American-sized pieces of cake are twice as big 
as proper sweetie-sized piece of cake. So Mrs. Becker realizes that her piece of cake is twice as big as everybody else's because she went through a line first. If she would have went, somebody would have went a line ahead of her, she could have seen them cut the postage stamp or whatever, you know, and she would have known what thing to do. So try to give people guidance so they can feel comfortable. Don't put them in an uncomfortable position. For some Muslims, dogs are an unclean animal. They don't like uh, your dog jumping on them. So the main thing is simply to, to make a 30 hours, one hour, talk and listen and try to understand. Some of them will understand, well, they, they don't know what's right, and they aren't going to be very offended if you do something wrong. Others may be, but it may be they're trying to make an issue of it. But always try to get them uh, to the gospel. It takes patience. Some missionaries went to a country, and they worked 10 years before they got their first convert. But today, there's hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Christians there. And somebody may work all their life, and only one Muslim becomes a Christian, but that lady's grandson becomes the evangelist who evangelizes that country. And it's 40 years after you're gone. That happens in our country, too. I had a case once where I was talking to a guy from another Lutheran church who really believed what we did in that. And... Uh, I, my wife and I would take him out to lunch. Actually, he had more money than we did, so we usually let him take us out for lunch. <laughs> you know, and I told him, you know, you know, well, you really have to get away from these bad influences, you know, against your people. And he said, well, John, if the people who are really sincere Lutherans in my congregation knew what our church stood for, they'd all be at your church next week. And I'd like you, John, but not that much. <laughs> and so we always had a very good relationship. And the point of the story is, 27 years later, I was sitting in my study, and this letter comes, and it has the guy's return address on. And he said, John, I had it right and tell you that I followed your advice, and we've, we're out of this entanglement. Well, when I said it, I wasn't thinking it was going to be 27 years <laughs> before it happened. But it taught me a very important lesson. We just have to plant the seed, and sometimes it lies there a long time. Sometimes you might see it sprout up. And you may never find out about it until you get to heaven and somebody tells you, you know, it was because you came and talked and presented the gospel that this is what led me to scripture and this is what led me to faith. And you may never know it in this lifetime. So those are, I would say, some of the main things to keep involved. We have a group for outreach to Muslims. They have lots of materials and that if you have things. But I think the main thing is show Christian love, talk about Christ, and listen patiently. Don't assume. You know what this Muslim believes. You know what that Muslim believes. They, they're all different. That's true whether you're working with Catholics or Jewish people or anything. You can't assume. You have to listen. So don't be too quick. In this case, we know what the answers are, Christ. But don't be too quick to give them the answers until they've figured out what the questions are. <clears throat> And they understand that the issue really is my sin, you're telling me. The issue is really Jesus. I mean, the issue is that God became human being. All of those things will uh, help you. So keep Christ in the focus. If, if you understand more about Islam, read about it, all the better. But you don't have to because you can let them tell you what their brand of Islam is. And those, I would say, are the main things about Islam. That's about we want to ask questions now. Is that right?
Okay, but there are so many areas, so rather than me talking a lot, I'll let you ask about the areas that you want to ask about. No, they believe that no prophet is put to death. Muhammad wasn't. If Jesus was a real prophet, he wouldn't have been crucified. They believe that Muhammad died. In fact, we would say one of the things is, what's the difference between, you wouldn't say this too quick until you're friends, but you'd say, you believe in a dead prophet, we believe in a risen savior, after you've talked about the resurrection and stuff. We, you, you grant that Muhammad was a prophet, he died. If Jesus was the son of God, he's more than a prophet. On, as whether Jesus died for sin, there's... The Quran says he did not die for sin. It just looked that way. There's several explanations to explain what that means, he did not die for sin. One is, some Christians said, well, he just kind of fainted and they thought he was dead. They stuck him in the grave, but he woke up and he really wasn't. And then he went off to India and became part of Mahadiya. Some of them, one other story is, they accidentally uh, crucified Simon of Cyrene. He was carrying the cross, and he got crucified by mistake. Another story is, these aren't in the Quran. These are just in Islamic tradition. Another story is that God made Judas look like Jesus. And so they grabbed Judas and crucified him. Well, I suppose that would be pretty neat justice, but it wouldn't help us deal with our sins, is it? So they would say a true prophet is protected by Allah, so that's why Muhammad would win. He would, but they do all believe all prophets die. Okay. So how do they justify that with all the other uh, prophets? So they believe in the fact that Jesus. Do they believe in the, the Torah and all the other Old Testament books as well? Yes and no. Okay. 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 He okay. asked, do, do they? They will say we believe in the law of Moses. We believe in the Psalms of David, and that they, they speak of them usually in their Arabic name. We believe in the gospel, the angel of Jesus. And so you say, oh, so you believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, no. So you believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. No. Well, what do you mean? When I say I believe in the Torah of Moses, Moses was a Muslim. And the law that Moses wrote was Islamic law. And the Jews have taken it and twisted it. So the Torah that we believe in, or the Torah we believe in, is the one that the Islamic Moses wrote. Jesus was a Muslim prophet. And so the gospel of Jesus that we believe in doesn't exist anymore because you Christians have distorted it and destroyed it. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's different. So that, yes, you say, do you believe in the writings of Moses, David, and Jesus? Yes, we do. So you believe in Genesis, Psalms, and Matthew? No, we don't. Okay, good question. Um, like speaking on like their writings and their beliefs, and where do they get the Quran from? Like, where is? Okay, Muhammad was a caravan driver. He lived in Arabia. Six hundred's a good, nice round number. He married a lady named Khadija, and she was the one. She owned a caravan business, and during the whole time, Khadija was significantly older than Muhammad. During the whole time that Muhammad was married to Khadija, he had no other wives only Khadija. Khadija was well-to-do, and Muhammad could take time to be kind of mystic. He'd go out to the cave, and he could meditate. And supposedly, Jabril is what they call the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel, Jabril, came to him 
and dictated the things of the Quran to him. They were not written down, but they were only memorized. None of the Quran was written down during Muhammad's lifetime. So he, he got this all in visions. Well, now, you, again, this is something you wouldn't say to, to Muhammad, to Muslims right away. Muhammad at times thought that he was possessed because he had these visions. And this is all from Islamic sources. There are no Christian sources about Muhammad. All the sources are only Islamic. And he told Gadidja, I thought I was possessed. And I might have gotten this from the devil. It might have been an evil angel. And Gadidja told him, no, no. Uh, our Professor Becker, when Muhammad said, I think some of my visions might have been from Satan, Professor Becker said that was maybe one of his better more accurate theological observations that he had this vision. But you wouldn't start out by saying that. So he had these visions. How many of you have heard of the, a book called The Satanic Verses? You don't have to know anything about it, but have you heard of The Satanic Verses? Okay, there was a very angry Muslim who hated, had come to hate Islam, and he wrote this book, and he didn't use the name Muhammad. He, changed, he took Muhammad and his wives, and he wrote a novel about him, and he was he, trying to, was he trying to be blasphemous and ridicule Islam? Absolutely. So he's had to be in hiding now for the last 25 years because he's got a contract out on him because he wrote this book, The Satanic Verses. The term The Satanic Verses comes from Islamic tradition. It's not in the Quran. When Muhammad was a persecuted minority, he believed in religious toleration. And he had agreed with the people in Mecca, if you follow me, you can continue to worship the goddesses. Then later he changed it. And they said, well, how could you say you could worship the goddesses? And the, the Islamic source says, Muhammad said, well, Satan must have slipped those verses in. And so Rushdie picked this up and wrote this novel, The Satanic Verses. Can you understand why they need to kill Rushdie? If Muhammad could not tell for sure which verses of the Quran were from Allah and which verses of the Quran were from Iblis, from Satan, that would be absolutely devastating to Islam, isn't it? But this isn't from Christian. This is, there's two main things in, in Islam. There's the Quran, and then there's a whole set of traditions, stories about Muhammad and that. And the stuff about the Sudanic verses is not in the Quran, it's in the tradition, but it comes from Islamic sources. And so that's, that's why they collected all the Qurans, made them all agree exactly with each other, got rid of all the others. What's the status of these uh, non-Quran, like these canon and uh, It's like the Jewish Talmud. They have different levels of reliability. And so, in other words, there's different, just like there were Pharisees and Sadducees and so on. In Islam, too, there's different schools. Like in Saudi Arabia, there's a more strict school, you know, like Hillel and Gamaliel and all these. So there's different things. So it's not like you can say there's many, many traditions. Some of them are more followed by one school. Some of them are more followed, just like with the Jewish Talmud. It's, it's very, very similar to Judaism, which has the Old Testament and the Talmud. They have the Quran. The traditions are usually called Hadith, the Hadith. And there are vast collections of them. And a lot of them are just little stories. Some of them, there's a lot of pretty bloody ones in it. There's ones about the marriages and that. But I said, 
if you thought you could accomplish anything by saying bad stuff about Muhammad, there's plenty of true material from Islamic sources that is very negative about who he was. But that isn't going to, this is going to make everybody mad, isn't it? It isn't going to accomplish much. So all that we know about Muhammad, 100% of it is from Islamic sources. And there were, of course, the divisions in Islam of the warring factions, which led to today we have the Sunni who follow Muhammad's companions, and we have the Shiites who follow Muhammad's descendants through his daughter, Fatima. Wahhabi is, is the kind of the dominant school in Saudi Arabia. And like, okay, so like you're talking about before, like the different sects or schools and that. Like, I mean, like the Saudi royal family has sort of this deal with the Wahhabi. We will let we will fund mosques and stuff for you. You can't be stirring up trouble in Saudi Arabia, and you know we'll, we'll kind of you don't bother us, we won't bother you, and it's kind of cooperative. So Wahhabism is the main. I'll call it a school, not in the sense of a building, but the school that is the dominant school in Saudi Arabia is Wahhabi. Would it be like more of a denomination uh, that we have here? <clears throat> it's not as formal as a denomination. It'd be more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees among the Jews. They all considered themselves part of one Jewish people, but the Pharisees had their approach, the Sadducees had their approach. Okay. The, the main difference is the Shiites are, if you, if you want to know what an Islamic country is like, there's two officially Islamic states that are full Islamic states in the world. One is Iran, that's the Shiite state. The other is Saudi Arabia, which is the Sunni state and where the shrines are. The main difference between the Sunnis and the Shiites, it's like the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's not that they have such different beliefs. They both believe in purgatory, they believe in the saints and so on. Their difference, their disagreement is who is the pope? Who is the leader? The Roman Catholic Church would say the bishop of Rome. The Eastern Orthodox Church would say no, the bishop of uh, Moscow, or the patriarch of Moscow, or the patriarch of Jerusalem, or the patriarch of Constantinople. So there was a, a power struggle in the 600s. Most of it took place in Iraq. And the ones who were the followers of Muhammad's companions, as they're called, they killed Muhammad's grandsons to try to seize power. And so in Iraq, the, I really support and love and care for about our servicemen, people served in Iraq. But when we went into Iraq, I thought this is doomed because the Shiites and the Sunni have been fighting each other for the death since the 600s. <clears throat> And can we come in there and in three years get them all to be Western Democrats and all live happily ever after? In Yugoslavia, they're fighting about things that happened in the 1300s. It, there's a tradition that goes on. My, I don't know if I can call him my friend, but my patron, I guess, Giath, he and I got to the point where we could talk about volatile topics like Israel and stuff like that. And I said, you know, well, Bill Clinton made Israel sign a thing where Israel had to give up 95% and the Palestinians had to give up 5%. And they said, I said, where are you going to get a better deal than that? He said, it was a terrible deal. So at the mosque down here, I asked him, how could Jews and Christians and Muslims live together in Palestine? 
This is 13th and Leighton. Jews and Christians and Muslims could live together in an Islamic state. For them, that's the bottom line of, of Jews and Christians could be allowed to live in Islamic state. And I asked Giath, he said, well, we're not anti-Jewish, we're just anti-Zionist. In other words, he said, we're not against the Jewish religion, we're against the Jews that came and took our land in Palestine. And he said, we, we really feel betrayed by them because when you guys were killing them, see, you guys, I'm a Christian, so I'm responsible for the Crusades, I'm responsible for the Inquisition, I'm responsible for that. When you guys were killing the Jews, we took them in. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There were anti-Jewish riots going on in Palestine in 1929, you know, before World War II and stuff. So how can you say that? He said, no, I'm not talking about 1947. I'm talking about 1492. Well, what happened in 1492? The Spanish Inquisition drove the Jews out of Spain. And they went to Islamic lands where they could be at least tolerated. They wouldn't be burned at the stake. They would be in the Inquisition. So you guys, when we were the Jews' friends, when you guys were killing them. See, I'm you guys, so I'm, what did, what did Osama bin Laden say? War against Jews and crusaders. You, in their book, you're all crusaders. You are responsible for the crusades. You are responsible for the Inquisition. And so these things are so deep and they're taught so strongly to young people that you'd say, Faith in Christ really is the only solution, isn't it? What can break that kind of hatred? Just political deals are saying, we're going to teach you some nice ways of farming. We're going to make some nice medical clinics for you. The Zionists did all those things. They were very, the Zionist Jews were very, uh, I call them humanitarian, humanistic. If we'll, we'll, we'll teach them how to do good farming, we'll bring education, and we'll all love each other. And so we thought, well, we can go there. If we get rid of Saddam Hussein, he's the only bad guy, everything's going to be all great. You've all heard about the Arab Spring, right? I think we want peace, but did that turn out well? We'll get rid of Gaddafi so we can have peace. We'll, get rid, we'll help him get rid of Assad in Syria so they can have peace. Did that work? No, there's these, there's these very, very deep entrenched hatreds. Iranians don't like Arabs. Iranians are Persians, they aren't Arab. The majority of Muslims live east of Afghanistan, and about 20% of Muslims are Arabs. 80% of Muslims are not Arabs. At your universities, I would think you have a pretty wide cross-section of Muslims from all kinds of places. If you look at the Islamic community in Milwaukee, most of them will be from India or Pakistan. That's where the great numbers of Muslims are. There's not many people in Saudi Arabia. There's not many people in Iraq. So Indonesia, India and Pakistan, the two parts of it, Bangladesh, that's where most Muslims are. Well, I don't want to get into terrorism that much, but who are most of the victims of, I'll call it Islamic terrorism, it's not all Muslims, who are most of the victims? Other Muslims. Other Muslims are by far the biggest majority. So there's this, there's this you know, in, in Iraq, just imagine what it's like to live there. The poor people, you know, from all sides. And most of the big bombings, that five people are killed here in the United States, and where is it? On the front page. <laughs> Seventy-five people are killed in a bomb in Baghdad. Where is it? Page eight. Something like that. So 
So it's a real, we're in a very, very messy, ugly world. And our government should do wise things to protect citizens, protect freedom of religion. Saudi Arabia, no Christianity is allowed in Saudi Arabia. When President Bush there went there, the first President Bush, he went to visit our troops. He had to have a Christian service on an aircraft carrier out in the Persian Gulf because you're not allowed to have any Christian worship in Saudi Arabia. Completely forbidden on the Arabian Peninsula. And the thing is, when you have these wars and that, if in, in Africa two tribes are fighting each other and one is Muslim and one is Christian, people will say that's a religious war. That may be part of it, but why are they fighting each other? Because you're tribe A and you're tribe B and tribe A hates tribe B. Or like in Ireland, the, the, there was supposed to be called conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants. Well, the Protestants were Scots that the British had brought in and the Irish were Roman Catholic. So was the so-called Protestant Catholic thing, was that really Protestant Catholic or was it Scotch versus Irish and British colonialism versus Irish independence? So there's always those things, even like women have to dress this thing, or you know, you've heard about some of the terrible things that have done to women, some of the surgical operations and stuff like that. You have to say, well, how much is this Islamic and how much of that is part of the culture? Say the, women, the way women are treated in Saudi Arabia, how much of that is Islam and how much of it is Arab? That's not always easy to set out. We're in a messy world where all kinds of things are tangled together. I don't want to take too much time, so you tell me when you're ready. Or people have to, somebody has to excuse themselves. Okay, one more. And I'll, I'll hang here for a little bit. They believe that God is the creator. They generally don't believe in evolution. They don't believe necessarily it happened the way Genesis did. It's kind of garbled. Satan was mad because he was afraid Adam and Eve were kind of taking his turf and were taking his place. So they believe in, in fall to sin. They believe in Adam and Eve. They believe Adam was a prophet. Strict Muslims generally, this is a problem for them in public schools too. They don't, of course, believe in co-ed gym and stuff like that. There's the food issue. But they also have a... Generally, many of them are anti-abortion, anti-evolution. So it depends on the, on the individuals. Okay, if, you're, if we're done, I'll close with a prayer, and then we can, I'll hang around here if you have some more yeah, questions. Okay. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us peace of conscience and soul through Christ, God who became man to die for our sins. Help us share this great story of your love with those who love us, with those who oppose us, and let us, be, let us use the love of Christ as the only weapon, if we want to call it that, the only tool that can break down the bitter hatreds that so many people from so many ways have in the world. Help us gladly share the gospel with all people in a loving, patient way. Amen. Well, thank you, Professor Brood, for a wonderful summary of the, the Islam and Muslim faith. Yeah.